bring our study of this great chapter down to its rip-roaring conclusion. I do trust that uh, your heart has been encouraged with mine over the past month or so as we've been in John 15, some just very incredible and practical lessons that our Lord has given to us about how we are to abide in Him, what life in Him is supposed to look like, and there's a few more points that He has to make for us here this morning. Well, as you're turning there, I would just lend my voice to that of Pastor Jeremiah and encourage all of you to make it a priority if you're in town and able to be here on Tuesday night for our Thanksgiving service together. I know on Thursday we're all looking forward to having time with our families and or friends, uh, but I think it's important for us to be together as a church family and to remember what God has done for us and in us, and that's going to be just a wonderful time of celebration as we rejoice with those who whose lives have been transformed by Christ and here are their testimonies of grace. And so I would encourage you to make plans to be here if at all possible. And I know you will not be disappointed. Look, whenever there is fellowship and there is food, it is bound to be a good time. And so I'm looking forward to that very much. All right, John chapter 15. We're gonna dive back into our text here beginning in verse 18. And if you're paying attention there in verse 18, you'll find that halfway through this chapter, we end up encountering what many commentators refer to as being a textual problem. That is this, between verse 17, where we left off last time, and verse 18, where we're picking up this time, there is an abrupt and shocking change of tone, a complete change of direction in the content of what Jesus is saying. See, the first half of this chapter, 1 through 17, has been all about abiding in Christ, abiding in his love, abiding in his word, abiding in his joy, and how that we ought to love one another as a result. But the back half of this chapter is all about persecution and opposition. We could ask the question this way, why the sudden change in thought, Jesus, A casual reading of the text might give you some logical whiplash if you're not properly strapped in. And I'll be honest, the commentators were not much of a help this week in answering this question. You see, some of them say that Jesus was walking past some unknown prompter that caused him to radically change and shift gears. Well, that explanation doesn't work because it's mere conjecture and it imposes something on the text that just simply isn't there. So we can go ahead and throw that option out. Other people, they say that John is recording statements from Jesus that didn't actually happen here on this night. He's just stitching things together haphazardly, kind of shoehorning stuff in before the end of Jesus's life. And that doesn't work. Because if we've learned anything about the Apostle John over the course of our study in his gospel, it's that he doesn't say anything on accident. Every single word has its purpose and its point. So we can go ahead and throw that option out. Well, still other people, they content themselves by saying, well, look, Jesus just wanted to change the subject. And because he's God, he has the right to do that. But that doesn't fit with the overall unity and structure of the rest of the Upper Room Discourse, which is a tightly woven explanation of what life in him was going to look like. Nor does it fit with the tone of voice that Jesus had in these last few very precious moments with his followers. He's not just giving them random thoughts. 
So, our mystery remains. What is Jesus doing here in these verses? Well, there is actually a very clear and compelling explanation that explains it all, but that most people miss. You see, the, the key to our problem can be found by looking back up at the opening verses of chapter 15. Because it's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 where Jesus gives us the outline for what he's going to be explaining throughout the entirety of this chapter. Look with me there. Jesus says in verse 1, we covered this three weeks ago and I told you then that there were two halves of this image. The first half is what he covers in verses 3 through 17. I am the true vine and every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. But my father is the vine dresser. That's the second half. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be more fruitful. You see, the two halves of the imagery that Jesus is using here in John chapter 15, on the one hand, every true vine or every true branch that is connected to the vine, it is going to bear fruit. And is that not what we've been studying in verses 3 through 17? What it means to bear fruit, why it's important to bear fruit, how to have a fruitful life. That's what we've been studying together. But see, in the first half of the chapter, Jesus talks all about fruit bearing, but he never once mentions the other half the image, fruit pruning. That is what he now goes on to do in the second half of this chapter. See, the second half of the image that Jesus hasn't dealt with yet is that in order for you to bear better fruit, you need the Father to do His work in your life to prune you, to shape you spiritually. And that is what Jesus is going to go on to talk about here in verses 18 all the way down through verse 4 of chapter 16. See, Jesus is simply transitioning here into the second half of the image just as he told us he was going to back in verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. So there really is no textual problem here. Jesus is just doing what he's already warned us he was going to do. See, it's really very clear, really very simple. And as he does that, his point now in these verses is going to be very clear for us. It's going to be very applicable to us. And that point is this. The father, as the vine dresser who comes with pruning knife in hand, he is willing to do whatever it takes to ensure that your life doesn't just bear some fruit, but to ensure that your life bears great fruit, both in quality and in quantity. Now, if you're a branch, and we are, because Jesus already told us that in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches if you are in me experiencing the effects, as you might imagine, of the pruning knife, that's not usually a pleasant kind of an experience. In fact, it can be downright painful. Because, you see, the Father has all sorts of sovereign means at His disposal to make you be dependent upon Jesus Christ. He has all sorts of tools in His heavenly tool shed to shape and fashion you into the image of Jesus Christ. And in the case of these 11 disciples that are still with Jesus here on this night before his crucifixion, as Jesus explains in these next verses, the Father's pruning in their lives was going to look like 
opposition, persecution, and yes, even death itself. But see, amid their trial, they were going to be tempted to ask if God's plan was, was off track. And what Jesus is going to tell them here is, no, no, the pain of the trial that you're about to undergo is actually proof positive that God's plan is precisely on track. Because it's the painfulness of these experiences that you need in order to realize the profit of looking like Jesus Christ. For without the painfulness of the trial, there, there is no way for you to be dependent upon him. No, the purpose of trials is to bring you into a place of dependency so that you might now walk with Christ, cling to Christ, and seek to be like Christ. That's what he's going to explain to us here in these verses. See, these verses are not just a monologue on how to handle persecution and opposition from the world. That might look like what it is at first glance, but that's not what's going on here. That is to miss the bigger point that Jesus is making. No, Jesus is using these verses on persecution as an extended illustration of what pruning was going to look like in the lives of these 11 men specifically. But that doesn't mean that the pruning in your life is going to look like the pruning in their lives. See, this is just an, an, an example. It's one of many ways that the Father makes us more like Christ, the opposition from the world. But there are many, many other ways that he does that. And we'll talk about some of those ways as we go here this morning. And that is the bigger principle that we need to keep in mind as we get into these verses. It's this. Listen now. God is not after your comfort. He is after your conformity to Christ. He's not intending for you to live a life of the greatest ease imaginable. He is intending for you to end up looking like Jesus Christ. And he has many, many means at his disposal to ensure that his work of coming into your life and pruning you to cause you to be dependent upon him will result in fruitfulness and praise and righteousness and glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And yes, there is going to be pain in that process, but in the pain, there will be great gain for you if you are willing to embrace it. And so must we all. You know, as I look out over this crowd here this morning, I know, because I've interacted with a number of you this week, that you are going through your own various kinds of trials, and my hope and prayer is that this morning, because of the lessons we learn in this text, that we would be able to obey the admonition of Scripture, which says to count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfast endurance, more faithfulness. That's what Jesus is about to teach to his men because the pruning in their lives was going to be more severe than you could imagine. But the fruitfulness of their lives would be more profound than they could have imagined. So let's look at this text together and see the lessons that are here for us to learn. Let's start first by looking at the painfulness of pruning, because indeed, it is painful. Now, it's important to remember now that Jesus is talking here in these verses to real men in a specific historical situation. And these words, while they contain great lessons for us, were primarily meant for these men, not us. 
And so when Jesus is describing what the pruning of the Father would look like in their lives, that doesn't necessarily mean, again, that that's what it's going to look like in your life. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing here in these verses for us to understand. No, here Jesus very clearly foretells the painfulness of pruning, which we can learn from, before he explains the profit that these men and us can hope to gain by going through it. So let's look at how the process of pruning manifested itself in the lives of these 11 disciples before we seek to apply those lessons to our own lives. Let's dive in. Verses 18 and 19. Right off the bat, we find in these opening verses that Jesus forewarns his disciples that the world, the world is going to hate you. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, for that reason, the world hates you. See, the truth in this verse could be stated this way. To be the friend of God is to be viewed as the enemy of the world, just as surely as being friends with the world is to be the enemy of God. And it's not just any kind of hatred that they're going to have here for Christ's followers. It is a burning, consuming furor. The word that Jesus uses here for the world's hatred is a word that means to detest or to abhor, to strongly dislike with a significant sense of hostility. Action follows this feeling. And it would be through the hatred of the world that Jesus was going to do his most profound work in the lives of these 11 men. That's why he says there in verse 19, look, if you were of the world, the world would love you. That word love there is the word for to have a brotherly affection. He says, if you looked like them and claimed to be part of them, they would wrap their arm around your shoulder and they would welcome you into their midst. But that's not the situation, is it? He says, but that's not the case because look, in verse 19, I chose you out of the world. And therefore, because of who you are in me, you're not of them. And they will hate you. See, and that was going to result for these men in some really significant uncomfortability. <laughs> it was going to produce what Peter would go on 30 years later to call, as he was undergoing it, fiery kinds of troubles. Now, let's face it. In our world today, we don't know anything like the painfulness of the trial that Jesus is giving here to these men. But we don't have to look far to see the, the, the world's hatred for Christianity validated, do we? Or its distaste for our Savior. You know, this week I saw an article. I don't know how it came across my news feed, but it was from Rolling Stone, that paragon of liberalism. And it was an article that was lambasting the brand new speaker of the house who claims to be a Christian. Now, I don't know the reality of his faith or what kind of Christian he really is, but the article, that's not the point. The article was laughing and scoffing at him for, for nothing connected to his political perspective or which side of the aisle he sat on. No, it had everything to do with the fact that he, this man, uses an internet accountability software together with his son. And to the unsaved mind, the author of the article was lambasting him as being, quote, creepy for taking such extreme measures to cut yourself and your family off from the evils of pornography. And the, the tone of the article was, what kind of a weird, controlling, ultra-fundamentalist would do such a thing? That was the gist of the article. Now, to us who know Christ, love him, and respect his commands, to us who desire to obey the word of God, the action that this man took seems to be perfectly reasonable. 
normal. But to our world, a world that hates the commands of Christ, hates the works of Christ, and hates the person of Christ, that man is totally bizarre. And so he suffers the scorn of the culture for no apparent good reason other than the fact that they hate Christ and they hate the commands of Christ. You ask yourself, why such hostility? I mean, leave the man alone. It's his business after all, what he chooses to do and how he seeks to pursue what he believes. Why the hostility? Well, let's answer that briefly. Look with me at verse 20. Jesus says, because I chose you and you're not of them, you're going to be persecuted, he says. It's a word there that means to molest or to harass or to pursue someone with a hostile kind of an intention. See, from here on out, the disciples would know the joy of Christ, but they would also know something else. They would know the hostility, they would know the difficulty, and they would know the reality of very profound trials because the world is hostile towards us because of Christ in us. Jesus says, look, they were hostile towards me, and now they're going to be hostile towards you. I mean, verse 20 is a, is a what-do-you-expect kind of moment. A servant is not greater than his master. He's already taught them that back in chapter 13. And so if they persecuted me, what do you think they're going to do to you? If they kept my word, they would keep yours. But they haven't kept my word, so they won't keep yours. These things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. See, the reality is the world has set itself in hostility against God. That's what sin is. It's me shaking my fist in God's face. And every sinner is set as an enemy towards God by nature. That's how we're all born and enter into this world. And because the world has resisted God and rejected him, it also rejects his son. And it rejects the message of his truth. They don't hate you because of you. They hate you because of Christ in you. See, they hate you, Jesus says, because of my name. On account of my name, they will hate you. And you can see that in how Jesus describes what's coming, because what's coming for these men is going to be great difficulty. See, there were two things that would cause the world to revolt against the Christian witness, particularly for these 11 men as they surged forth out of Jerusalem around the Roman world. First, in verses 22 and 23, you can see it's his word. They heard his words, and those words convicted them of their sin, and so they hated the author of those words. Is that not the spirit of this world? Who are you to tell me what is right and wrong? See, that's the way the world thinks. If that's not a reflection of our age, I don't know what is. But it's not just the word of Christ that they hate as we seek to proclaim it. No, it's also the work of Christ. Look there at verse 24. Jesus says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. They would have felt no conviction. But now they have seen the works that I have done that no one else did. And so they hated me, both me and my father. See, when the unbelieving world is confronted with the reality of righteousness as they see the righteousness of Christ being formed in us, they feel as though that righteousness of him is standing in judgment over them. And it is. And so they hate that feeling of conviction because they say, who are you to judge me? And the answer is, look, I'm not standing here in judgment over you. 
I'm, I'm not the one bringing judgment down upon you. I'm simply seeing the righteousness of Christ formed in me. And if that righteousness and that righteous standard that you see causes you to feel convicted of your immorality and sin, well, then maybe you need to have a conversation with God. But they don't see it that way. And so they hate, verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Literally there, they hated Christ without any good reason. That's the literal translation. And their senseless hatred, it only amplifies the frightfulness of the damage that they are now going to seek to inflict upon the followers of Christ as Jesus explains it to these men. You know, if you go back and look at the biblical reference that Jesus is quoting from here, you'll find that this is a quotation from a Messianic psalm. Psalm 69, verse 4. And let me read you that whole verse because when you hear it in its context and then you hear Jesus say, and they're going to hate you just as they hated me, you'll realize just how much this would have raised the hair on the necks of the disciples. Here's what Psalm 69, 4 has to say in context. Ready? More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would seek to destroy me, those who attack me with their lies. And so here's the reality of what Jesus is teaching his men, men who would have known the fullness of that quotation. Many mighty men will seek to destroy you just as they seek to destroy me. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And how will they do that? Well, skip ahead with me down to chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. He says there, they will put you out of the synagogues, a fearsome fate in that world. It means you will lose everything. You will lose your families. You will lose your employment. You will lose your ability to be employed. You will lose your society and you will live like a homeless outcast the rest of your life. That's what he says. That's what they're going to do to you. Indeed, more than that, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is doing so as an, as an offering and of service to God. And they will do those things because they have not known the Father, nor have they known me. That is a really kind of eye-popping moment if you're a disciple, right? Where Jesus says, they're going to kill you. And they'll say the whole time that they're setting you on fire and driving weapons into your flesh and beating your head in with stones that they're just doing the work of God. Now, if I'm a disciple, I'm feeling just a tad bit queasy at this point in the conversation. This is a really extreme form of pruning, Jesus. That's what they're thinking here. I mean, the cost of discipleship for these men was going to cost them everything, their lives included. Why would anybody in their right mind sign up for this? Why would they agree to it? Why didn't they just drop everything, turn and walk away at that very moment? And here's the reason why. This is what Jesus is driving down to here in this text. It's what we're going to get down to in these next verses. Let me give it to you now. Just as surely as the world's hatred is driven by its distance from Christ, so our embrace of Christ, even if it means suffering, is driven by our proximity and closeness to him. You see, God's purpose in pruning is to use the difficulty of this life to make us dependent upon him, to see him more clearly, to draw closer to him than we would otherwise if we just led lives of comfort with no pain. See, when we're comfortable, we don't grow as we should. That's just the reality of it. You all know the old saying, no pain, no what? 
no gain. Spiritually speaking, the very same thing is true. Little pain equals little gain. But great pain, if rightly embraced and seen, can produce great gain, great fruitfulness in your life. And that is what Jesus is saying when you allow the context to drive these verses. And that's true for us too, see. If you put a Christian in a bubble of comfortability and say, grow, you'll find that the progress will be slow. But you take a Christian and you surround him with the context of real life, with all of its grit and dirt and difficulty, you tell him to depend upon his God and the result will always be great fruitfulness, magnificent fruit. And that is the application of these verses for us now, even though we're not facing the persecution of this world as these men faced it. No, the whole point here is that the persecution was just one of many ways that God the Father sees fit to bring his pruning knife down into life. But there are many other ways that the Father can prune us. And if we will embrace those things and pay attention to them, there can be great gain for us as well. James 1-2 teaches us, again, we are to count it all joy when we encounter various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, as we've said, the Father has all sorts of tools at His disposal to accomplish the work of pruning in your life. It's not just persecution or opposition. No, his, his tool shed is filled up to overflowing with ways to increase your dependency upon him. He uses close relationships, neighborhood interactions, family difficulties, financial challenges, inflationary pressures, physical pain, sickness, disease, societal discord, political strife, workplace drama, the death of a loved one, the sleeplessness of child rearing, even pregnancy himself. He uses school PTAs and neighborhood HOAs. You see, the whole point is that God can take everything and anything in your life and use it as an instrument to cause you to walk in dependency upon him because there's difficulty involved in living this life. And when you encounter the difficulty, the answer is not to run away because that hurts. No, the answer is to lean into His grace amidst the difficulty, knowing that He has not come and brought these things into your life without a reason. No, He has brought them because His goal is that you would walk in dependency on Christ and that you would grow to be more like Christ. And that is is the point of the process. See, you get the picture. Every piece of your life in the skilled hands of the Father, it's being used to shape and fashion as He sets to work with the tools of providence in you. He allows you to walk through these things, not, friend, not born of cruelty, but born of love. Because I'll say it again, He's not after your comfort. He's after your heart. And I think that for us, that's a really comforting reality. It should be. You know, this week over numerous breakfasts and lunches and dinners, I, I talked with many of you about the various trials that the Lord has you in right now. And in every single case, you know what I noticed as I interacted with you? I noticed that the pruning knife of God in your life when applied to your life, 
it, it hurts. Genuinely, profoundly, and sometimes overwhelmingly. But you know what else I noticed? That through all of that difficulty, and sometimes with tears in your eyes, you recounted the way that God is doing mighty things in your life through the difficulty to the praise of his glory. You recounted the ways that you are now seeing him in a different way. You're walking in a different kind of dependency upon him as he produces his good and perfect fruit in you. And that's the reason why we embrace the vine dresser when he comes to us with knife in hand. Because we know, or we should know, that everything in our life is ultimately for our spiritual good and for his glory. And that is the profit in the pruning that if you understand it, will make it all so very much worth it. Let's look at that now. We've seen the painfulness in their life. We know it in ours. But let's look here now and see what the profit is in this. We can find it there in verses 26 and 27. See, here is the reason that Jesus gives the disciples for why and how they should be able to withstand the trial that was coming their way. It's because, verse 26, the helper is coming, riding to the rescue. See, despite the fire of the trial, Jesus has not hung you out to dry. He has not left you ill-equipped with no way to approach this difficult thing in your life. No, if you be in Christ, you have his spirit in you. And who is that spirit? Well, Jesus renames him about 50 times here in this verse. He's the helper who is sent from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, and this is what he does. Ready? He bears witness all about me. See, here's the implication of that. Jesus has planted his spirit inside of you, enabling you, as we learned earlier in this chapter now, to abide in him. You'll never be alone. To know the joy of Christ despite your circumstances. To illuminate for you the word of Christ so that you don't need to be confused in days of darkness and difficulty. See, that's exactly how the Spirit of God sustains you amidst difficulty. It's interesting here. The Spirit of God has not been mentioned in the text for over a chapter, but he's been there the whole time. It's been since the middle of chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit was mentioned. But through the rest of 14 and all of 15, the Spirit of God has been there undergirding everything. You can't abide in Christ apart from the Spirit. And here now, at the very height of the pruning process, Jesus gently pushes the Spirit forward out of the shadows and into your awareness. Verse 26, here is exactly how the Spirit of God now is going to sustain you men, Jesus says, amidst your difficulty. He is going to shine the spotlight of truth onto the person of Christ. That's what Jesus says there in verse 26. He will bear witness about me. And that, that little phrase right there is the beating heart of how you and I can be sustained amidst the difficulties of the life that we're in. When we go through our own pruning process, it is our awareness of the beauty and the 
glory and the love of Jesus that will sustain you now. And the only way that you can see him in the midst of the darkness of this life is as the Holy Spirit of God shines a spotlight upon him, piercing through the darkness and showing you the reality of who your Jesus is. See, the reality of Christ now being found in you is that you have a flame in you that does not flicker, it does not falter, it cannot be put out because the Spirit of God ensures that no matter how profound the darkness around you is, you can always see and know and have access to the glory of Jesus Christ. That is how he has equipped you for the days of difficulty that God is going to bring into your life. See, despite the bitterness of life in a fallen world, you have the ability to understand and know the love, the goodness, the kindness, the compassion, and the mercy of God. As the Spirit of God illuminates the person of Jesus Christ, regardless of the difficulty that you're in, and that right there, that proximity to Jesus, that is the prophet that drives us to the bearing of better fruit in abundant quantities. And indeed, that's exactly what was going to happen in the lives of these disciples. Look with me there at verse 27. See, despite the persecution, despite the painfulness of the pruning, because of the Spirit's work in their lives, the disciples would bear fruit. They would bear witness. Jesus says, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See, and what was the result of the fruit in the life of the disciples? Well, the fruit of their lives, it can be traced in a distant way all the way right down to you and to me. The reason why you and I are gathered here together today is because we have received the gospel message that these men took and delivered to the ends of the earth. And despite the painfulness, the great painfulness of what they were put through in the delivery of that message, the Lord used the fire of that trial to grow their faith. The result was faithfulness, and the direct result of that faith and faithfulness was the spread of Christianity to the ends of the earth. Was there great pain? Absolutely. But was there great gain? You and me are sitting here right now, 2,000 years later. I would say yes, absolutely. See, that's the purpose of trials in our lives, that our faith in Christ might grow and produce fruit in our lives that we as of yet today cannot even begin to comprehend. That is what God is doing, his purposes. And the end result of what he will do with the fruit of your life, you can't know it, you don't know it, but you can know that he will be faithful to you in the midst of the trial, and that's the reason why James commands us to count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith now produces endurance. Now, I know that for those who here this morning or perhaps in the past who have known the fiery heat of a significant trial, what we're saying here can be a very hard pill to swallow because the pain is so great that it can be difficult to accept the purposes of God behind it. But we must never forget, never allow ourselves to forget, that God's willingness to undergo trials isn't a reflection of his cruelty or his unkindness, for he is not cruel nor is he unkind. 
No, his willingness for us to undergo those trials is actually just the opposite. And I want you to see that as we move into verses one through four here. Because in these verses, Jesus says, yeah, it's gonna get bad. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But look at what he brackets that, that most severe statement with both before and after. He says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. The word there for falling away is to be scandalized. It's a word that means to trip or to stumble or to fall. And Jesus says, I, I'm bringing these things to your attention. I'm explaining to you both what is going to happen and why it's going to happen ahead of time so that when it happens, you won't be tempted to run away and abandon me. In verse 4, he says, I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And that's very important. I mean, let's just set these verses again in their context for a moment. Jesus is preparing to leave these men. These are some of his final words to these men, and they are dreadfully frightening words. I mean, this doesn't sound like much of a closing pitch. I'm leaving you, and you'll all be killed. Why would you scare these guys with that kind of a knowledge? See, he's telling them about what's to happen and why God was going to allow it, not because he doesn't care for them. He's telling them because he does care for them. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, goes to them ahead of time and says, I care enough about you that I want you to know that when the Father's pruning comes into your life, the difficult times that you're going go, to go through, they're, they're not evidence of God's plans being off track. No, it's just the opposite. See, during difficult times, fiery trials, those things are actually evidence that God's plan is working just as he designed it to. For it will be through the difficulty of those times that the greatest kind of growth will occur in your life. So brother and sister, what do we now do with that knowledge? Well, when you encounter various trials... Count it all joy and look to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Find your joy in him no matter the circumstances. Ask yourself, even though it hurts, what is God's intention for me during this time? As John Piper has so wisely said, don't waste your trial. Turn to Christ because you know that he cares for you. He cared enough to warn and prepare these men for what was coming, to instruct them and to get them ready so that when the trial came, they'd be prepared. And you know what? He has done exactly the same thing for you and me as well. He has prepared us to be cared for amidst the challenge of life in this world. He has done that by putting His Spirit directly into us so that we would never be without him. We would never have to stare down the fiery road that is before us feeling all alone. No, he cares and is with you. Without him, he's already told us, you can do nothing. But with him, there is nothing that you cannot do. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You know, we can never allow ourselves to forget the truth of Romans 8.28, which is one of those verses that people love to quote completely out of context. 
It's, it's a verse that is given to us in a context that talks about perils and trials and swords and tribulations and distress and persecution. And it's in that context, a context of profound difficulty, that Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But the context in which God is working out his good things is in the context of great painfulness and difficulty. And do you know how that goodness is formed and produced in you? Well, back it up two verses and you'll see. He explains to us, it is as the Spirit of God is interceding on your behalf with groanings that are too deep for words. Because you, you are in the midst of a trial that causes you to not even know how to pray as you ought to. But here the Spirit of God is present there helping you in your weakness. You don't know how to pray as you should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for you with groanings that are too deep for words. That is how he makes sure that that all the good things are formed in your life. And church, you may sit here this morning and be distraught by the difficulties that are in your life, not knowing how to pray as you ought to in the midst of such a situation. Remember, not only does God have his purpose for you amidst that pain, that you would know and grow in Christ, but he has also equipped you for that moment because he has given you the helper, the spirit of truth, whom he has sent from the Father at his request. He has been granted to you to ensure that his purposes will be accomplished in you and that his presence would always be with you. That's the purpose and it's the prophet for us in the pruning of the Father, that we might know and grow in Christ, draw close to Him, walking in dependency on Him, knowing that He loves you, and He has said these things so that these men and now us, that we might not be tempted to fall away in the face of the heat. See, hard things come, but Jesus remains. He will sustain, and so we must abide in Him. And the Father, if we do, will produce great fruit in us. Our lives ultimately standing as testimonies of God's grace to the watching world and for the rest of eternity. Now let me give you one final thought this morning here as we close. What Jesus is prescribing here. You may say it all sounds great in theory. I see it on the page. But how does it work when the rubber meets the road and real life starts to hit? Well, what Jesus is prescribing actually does work. And we know that because we can look back at the lives of the apostles. We can see how this played out in their lives. We can see how they applied these truths and the result was faithfulness and fruitfulness. You know, according to church history and to early church tradition, each man of the 11 that Jesus is talking to here were, were, met the end that he had prophesied in, in this text. Peter, crucified. Andrew, crucified. Bartholomew, skinned alive, then crucified. Thomas, speared. Philip, impaled. Matthew, stabbed. Simon, sawn in half. 
Thaddeus beaten with clubs, James beheaded, Paul beheaded, Matthias burned alive. John is the only one of the twelve to die a natural death. But even he was said to have been dropped into a vat of boiling oil from which he was miraculously delivered. How on earth could twelve out of twelve have faced such hostility, faced such profound pruning, and yet been so faithful? It was only as the Spirit of God sustained them and provoked within them a love for the glory of Christ that they were willing to embrace the trials that he brought into their lives, knowing that the prophet would ultimately be the attainment of their hope. And that is the reason why the Apostle Peter could say about these kinds of trials. Listen now. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. My friends, we must never forget that God's purpose for us is likeness to and love for Christ, and that is the point of pruning. And despite the admitted hardship of it, it is for your spiritual good. Let's close in prayer today.